Hi, everybody. Welcome again to the Trauma Podcast. Today, we're joined by Carlos Brown, my former mentor, good friend, cover man for Texas Monthly. He's really done it all. Thanks for joining us, Carlos. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So today, I wanted to ask you, you've done some work in this area, so I thought you'd be the ideal expert to talk a little bit about rectal injuries in the setting of trauma. It's kind of an interesting, it's really a 10 to 15 centimeter section of the enteric tract between the colon and the anus, but it presents to us a lot of clinical entities. It's seen a lot of different changes in care, and I'm hoping you can help us figure out what the right thing to do in 2020 is. So you and Dr. Velmahos, uh, George Velmahos, reported in 2005 the results of a study looking at hemodynamically stable, non-tangential abdominal gunshot wounds demonstrating the value of CT in these patients. And uh, similar data exists in support of CT and pelvic penetrating wounds. And, and what kind of what I want to get at uh, before we get specifically to the rectum is uh, if we're worried about rectal injuries or lower GI injuries and penetrating tangential, non-tangential wounds to the abdomen, uh, when do we need to, how, what's the optimal CT protocol do we use? Do you always use IV contrast in these patients? Do you always use rectal contrast? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, like like any other trauma patient, regardless of what injury you're worried about, the patients that are hemodynamically unstable or have peritonitis should be taken directly to the operating room. No need for diagnostic tests. But in today's trauma practice, if a, if a trauma patient needs a diagnostic test, that test of choice is almost always a CAT scan to get you definitive information of, number one, the diagnosis, and number two, your subsequent treatment plan. And I think... You know, the more you can standardize things in trauma patients, the better off uh, you're going to be. And obviously, the the head CT is going to be a non-contrast study, but everything else from the head down through the pelvis is going to be a a study with IV contrast. Now, many people have attempted using oral contrast, rectal contrast, things like that. But to me, the initial CAT scan in a trauma patient is with IV contrast only, no time or confusion from oral or rectal contrast, IV only CAT scan. That's going to get you the, the, in the vast majority of patients the information you need to make an appropriate diagnosis and treatment. So let me ask you, so let's say it's a trans-pelvic gunshot wound or trajectory. You're looking at the holes here. Patient's stable, but you say, you know, the rectum may be at risk here. Would you use rectal contrast in that patient, or would you avoid it, or what's your considerations there? You, you know, I, would, I probably would still not use rectal contrast because really what you're looking for with uh, the CAT scan is trajectory of the bullet, and I think introducing rectal contrast in that setting is probably going to confuse things more than help you. The, the, uh, the CAT scan with just ID contrast will give you a really good view of trajectory, especially if you put markers on the, uh, uh, the bullet wounds. In addition, it's gonna show you subtle findings like air and fluid and, and um, um, uh, distortion of the fat around a rectum. And I think introducing that rectal contrast is gonna make it harder potentially to see some of those, um, some of those findings. Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, now your 2018 Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery article, which outlined your results of the double uh, American Association for the Surgery of Trauma collaborative efforts uh, looking at rectal injuries, is the largest series I know of. It's a pretty much a must read if you're, I think, if you're look, talking about rectal, rectal injuries and for my money really changed practice relative to these injuries. So can you just kind of give us the cliff's notes of uh, what those findings were and your perspectives on them? Yeah, um, yeah, that, that was one of that was really a fun study to do. It's always fun to work with your colleagues across the country, and like you said, this was a double multi centered study, and really we were looking to um, 
sort of uh, codify what the current practice is with uh, traumatic uh, rectal injuries and, and civilian injuries specifically in the United States. You know, the, the history of rectal injuries and management is, you know, direct repair, resection, and then some combination of diversion, distal, rock, rest or walkout, distal rectal washout or presagal drainage. Now, over the years, there's been a bunch of studies looking at all those uh, factors, proximal diversion, distal rectal washout, presagal drain, but none of the series have been really big enough to draw any significant conclusions. And so we've, we undertook a study that we figured would generate a large sample size, which in fact it did, and included 785 patients with traumatic rectal injuries from 22 level one trauma centers in the country. I think what it allowed us to kind of really uh, dig down deep into the management of these patients. And the primary outcome was abdominal complications, which we defined as abscess in the abdomen, abscess in the pelvis, retroperitoneum, or fascial dehiscence. And then we looked at um, the outcomes based on a variety of factors, including grade of injury, intraperitoneal versus extraperitoneal um, uh, mechanism, and then whether people got the uh, treatment algorithms of diversion or presacral drain or distal rectal washout. And what we basically found was for intraperitoneal rectal injuries, uh, proximal diversion was associated with an increase in complications. So it's counterintuitive. You think you put up a stoma, you, complications go down. That's actually wrong. Really, proximal diversion had more complications. Now, the things that really, after logistic regression, drove complications were grade of injury, penetrating mechanism, but diversion did not protect at all. In fact, had higher complication rates. Then when we're looking at extraperitoneal injuries, where I think really diversion is more of a standard for extraperitoneal injuries, um, we wanted to look at the effects of presacral drain and distal washout. And once again, diversion in extraperitoneal injuries, diversion had more complications, presacral drain had more complications, and distal washout had more complications. And I think most importantly is while controlling for all other factors in the regression, distal rectal washout and presacral drain were still independently associated with abdominal complications with, you know, three threefold increases in those complications. So I think it sort of put the nail in the coffin in a couple of things. It, it, it put a nail in the coffin for proximal diversion for intraperitoneal injuries, don't think that's needed, as well as for um, presacral drain and distal rectal washout for extraperitoneal rectal injuries. So you just basically took down the whole, all three of the holy triad that used to be the standard of care for rectal injuries per what you're telling me based on the data and your interpretation of it, correct? Yeah, yeah, and I think people have been saying that for a long time. You know, the original do everything was sort of back to the Vietnam era, and over the past several decades, people have sort of tried to debunk all of those things. You know, diversion is required, pre-stroke drain is required, district washout is required. But again, it's all been fairly small series over the years, and only one prospective randomized trial in 98 by Gonzalez on pre-sacral drain. That's the only class one evidence we have. So everything else was just small case series. So I think putting all these patients together, almost 800 patients, allows us to draw a little bit stronger conclusions that these treatments are just unnecessary in the management of these patients. So I'll, I'll take a step back. You mentioned a couple of some a, a decision points, sort of here uh, between intraperitoneal and extraperitoneal. Yeah. Is that dis how important is that distinction? And what tools do you are you have some utility in modern practice in helping us define that besides just simple CT? What a contrast enema, endoscopy, and, and if it's endoscopy, do you rigid, flexible? What, what tools would you use in the modern era? Yeah, you know, I think anatomically, um, 
the, to the, you know, distinguish. Well, first of all, intraperitoneal versus extraperitoneal distinction is important because intraperitoneal, I think you can treat as if it is a colonic injury. Once again, no diversion needed at all. Um, extraperitoneal, fairly standard is diversion. So knowing you have an extraperitoneal injury, you're probably going to want to divert that patient. Now, how to define that? Um, in the operating room, is a little bit easier. You're looking at peritoneal reflection, specifically the anterior peritoneal reflection. So it's a little bit easier to define it. Without that, you may need to use CAT scan and, and um, using pelvic landmarks. You know, is it out of the pelvis, in the pelvis, um, and endoscopy the same way. So I think you know, being facile with endoscopy, knowing your landmarks, and then using your radiologist to help you determine intra versus extra peritoneal um, on CT scan. So let me give you a scenario. You've got this patient that has kind of a CT scan. It, it clearly says it's close to ex- that, that junction of extra and intraperitoneal. How do, you, how do you skin that cat and approach that? Do you start with endoscopy? Do you do an X-lap and look from above? How do you really, what's your algorithm for defining yeah. definitively that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if the patient is hemodynamically stable, uh, and does not have peritonitis, then I think you can take your time with the evaluation. I'd take that patient to the operating room, put him up in lithotomy, and plan for a combination of rigid proctoscopy, which may give you your answer right there, and you can be done with your diagnosis. And if it's still unclear, probably a diagnostic laparoscopy, um, and then determine by those two uh, methods, this is intraperitoneal or extraperitoneal. If it's intra- intraperitoneal, I'm going to open and fix it. Uh, and again, make sure there's no other injuries, you know, ureter, vascular injuries, things like that. And if it's extraperitoneal, um, while I'm doing my diagnostic laparoscopy, I'll at that point pull up a diverting uh, loop velocity. Okay. You know, sometimes these injuries get a little tricky because the rectum has some neighbors that are uh, a little tricky to manage, certainly in conjunction with a rectal injury. So how does the presence of some of these specific injuries change your management or considerations with rectal injury? And let's, just, let's start with bladder injury. So you've got to combine yeah. bladder and rectal injury. Well, how do, what, what are the tips? Yeah, you know, so I think when you have a rectal injury, the one thing you need to think about, like you said, is there are a whole other, whole bunch of other structures that are super important that you need to rule out injury to those as well. That includes the bladder and the ureters from the genital urinary tract and then major vascular injury, right? So major vascular injury is going to take priority over everything else every single time that needs to be addressed. And that patient will most likely be unstable at presentation and you'll make your diagnoses in the operating room. So major vascular injury trumps everything needs to be addressed first. And then the rectal injury, as we discussed, intraperitoneals repair, no diversion needed, extraperitoneals diversion, no drain or washout needed. Now, as far as the combination with bladder injury, um, we actually studied this well, as well. This was just studied, uh, published in February of this year, a couple of months ago. Uh, one of my um, trauma urologists, Charles Osterberg, published um, a follow-up study to our rectal injury study with the same database looking at concomitant bladder and rectal injuries and found that the bladder injury doesn't change the rate of abdominal complications and vice versa. So you can manage the bladder injury as you normally would and the rectal injury as you normally would even if they're in combination and there's no benefit to adding a colostomy just because of the bladder injury present at the same time. So you can still manage your bladder down your standard algorithm and your rectum down your standard algorithm and your, your outcome should be equivalent. What about the complex, you talked about vascular, bladder, what about complex pelvic fractures? Yeah, those in and of themselves, as you know, are highly lethal um, and require a multidisciplinary, multimodal approach to treating. Um, I think a closed pelvic fracture probably doesn't change my management of rectal injury much. Um, However, an open pelvic fracture, especially with the perineum, perianal area, 
uh, open, that's going to drive me to two, um, a diversion, a diverting colostomy, regardless of the rectal injury, just to protect the, um, the perineal perirectal space and, you know, trying to avoid um, pelvic sepsis uh, from that open pelvic fracture. But yeah, pelvic fracture, probably the treatment of that will, will trump your treatment of your rectal injury because they're so lethal. So we've talked about diversion here a couple of times in a couple of different contexts, and it sounds to me like for intraperitoneal injuries, the data suggests we don't necessarily have to reflex go to a a diversion. And you've mentioned for extraperitoneal that a couple of times that seems to be kind of maybe the smart thing to do. What are the true indications for? Let's let's talk about extraperitoneal here. Does everybody need a diversion? You know, we don't have we don't have. the evidence to, to to have an answer to that question. So I think the standard findings in most studies is that people with extraperitoneal injuries get diverted. There's been two very small series that have challenged the need for proximal diversion and extraperitoneal injuries. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to really um, draw big conclusions to that. One had 30 patients, six of whom were repaired without diversion. The, paper, the second paper had 14 injuries that were managed without, managed without diversion. So you have a total of 20 patients. Now in our series, um, some did not receive a diversion and did as well as those that received a diversion. So I think really that's kind of dealer's choice. Choice To me in my practice, an extraperitoneal injury gets a diversion. But I think there's room for study there to determine really, is that really helping or not? Because everything else we're finding in, in colon injuries this our series of rectal injuries that diversions are bad i suspect we may find the same for extraperitoneal rectal injuries but we don't have enough data to say right now okay so how do you take that uh, on a, a patient by patient basis so if it's a simple nine millimeter hole and you look in there you do an oscopy extraperitoneal you just see a simple hole through and through the rectum not a lot of devastating destruction would you would you divert that in your practice i i probably would i think if somebody wanted to just repair it and not divert i think that's acceptable in my practice, I probably would do a loop, a laparoscopic loop sigmoid colostomy, which is very easy to take down. Um, but in my practice, I, st- I still think I would. Okay. What have we not covered about rectal injuries that you wish most surgeons or trauma surgeons better understood? I think diagnosis, um, you know, a missed rectal injury uh, that you don't identify can be really catastrophic. That can have significant problems with uh, sepsis, septic shock, you know, pelvic, uh, pelvic complications, and even death. So I think the diagnosis is essential. Um, we, looked, we did another follow-up study looking at diagnostic techniques, and CAT scan and proctoscopy are your two mainstays of diagnosis, but realize both may uh, still miss injuries. The combination of the two will capture 97% of injuries. So if there's any index of suspicion, um, the, the diagnostic algorithm should include CAT scan, as well as uh, rigid proctoscopy to make sure you haven't missed that rectal injury, which can be such a cause such a bad outcome. Well, Carlos, as per the usual, you are a wealth of knowledge. I always get smarter talking to you. But we've come to that time in our podcast where we now uh, shift to our random questions. And I think you might have an idea how this works. But these questions are designed to basically help us understand better how you think and who you are as a human being and not just a trauma icon. So with your permission, I'll start with the random questions. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, I think so. A little hesitant, but ready. Okay. So it... Um, I'm going to ask you to utilize taxonomy here for a bit, uh, and I want to. I, this is a question that I've had many different answers to. Uh, if you had to classify into a genus as either a sandwich or a taco, the American hot dog, which would it be? 
Is it is well, a hot dog from, a sandwich? <laughs> well, being from Texas, there is no way, shape, or form that a hot dog is a taco under any circumstance ever. <laughs> so the only option would be sandwich. That being said, I'm quite a sandwich aficionado, eating, having in a sandwich every single day for lunch, I think, since I was in about fourth grade. It's hard to really classify it as a, as a sandwich either, but clearly not a hot dog. If I had to pick one, it would be sandwich, but if I could pick neither, I would say unclassifiable. Fair enough. I mean, the the, the the hot dog bun is shaped a little bit like a folded over tortilla. That's all I'm just saying. There's continuity in the backside. I can understand how a novice, a neophyte, might classify it as such. And the fact well, you that and you've eaten... Both, you and I both being Texans know that a hot dog is not a taco. I completely agree with you. I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if I'm more disturbed by the answer or the fact that you've only eaten sandwiches since the fourth grade for lunch every day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe Unless you, I was deployed eating MREs, otherwise it's a sandwich. Maybe you need some variety in your lunchtime meals. Uh, what are so Einstein, famously one of the great minds of our time, was famous. At least famously, it was it suggested that he had a hard time tying his shoes. So even the smartest people are not perfect at everything. What are you freakishly bad at? Wow. Um, you know, I hate to say this because I really wish I was good at it, but I would say singing. Uh, followed by a close second uh, of dancing. I'm a, just a horrendous singer. Really? And I like to sing and I like to listen to music, but I'm really bad, embarrassingly so. Like, I really won't do it in front of people. Um, I'm one of those guys who sits in church or public places, and if there's a, people are singing a song, I sort of mouth the words so no one has to actually hear me. What about karaoke? Have you ever been on the spot with karaoke? Or, uh... Yes, 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 yes. And if I get a, enough cocktails in me, I'll get up there and do karaoke knowing that people are looking at me probably laughing at me rather than with me. What would be your go-to karaoke song? My go-to karaoke song, um, probably uh, My Sharona by The Knack. Okay. Uh, Ring of Fire. um, uh, Possibly Ring of Fire by uh, Johnny Cash. Okay. Um, I'm a Sweet Caroline guy myself. I think that just gets the crowd involved, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sweet Caroline, whenever we do karaoke, Sweet Caroline always comes on. Somebody always does that. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of frustrating. See, my oldest son, Trevor, is an excellent karaoke singer, and he always belts out some some fabulous tunes. And so it's, it's, it's fun to watch him, but I wish I was as good as he was. Yeah, the generational differences in karaoke are fascinating. So, talk, staying on the music topic, what are you guys, you're, we're spending a lot of time at the house these days, of course, with our uh, COVID lockdown and such. What do, you, what do you listen to around the house? What's your go-to artist that you're listening to these days? Yeah, it's funny you say that because we, you know, we, my wife and three kids and I have been eating dinner and lunch and dinner some almost every day for the last several weeks. And so we're spending a lot of time together. We turn on the Sonos, we play some music. It's a lot of classic rock. And I'm always impressed at how much my, how much classic rock my kids know. They really know a lot of classic rock. And so classic rock, I like alternative music myself. Green Day uh, and the Cars are probably two of my all time favorite bands. Um, And then, you know, our kind of go-to when we can't think of anything else are probably going to be Lyle Lovett or George Strait. There's obviously a lot of country as well, but Lyle Lovett and George Strait are probably my two go-to artists when I can't think of anything else. You are a Texan, good sir. You are a Texan. Uh, and finally, kind of a, a deeper question here. So we've got a lot of people, hopefully, who will listen to this that are going to be interested in trauma surgery. They may not yet be trauma attendings or even trauma fellows. So if I'm a young trauma trainee, uh, either resident or fellow level, and I'm interested in a career in trauma surgery, what advice would you give people to ensure success is the kind of success that you've been able to achieve? Yeah, I think... Um, ha- 
having a passion uh, for our career. I love what I do. You love what you do. Yeah. You know, we're academic trauma surgeons. We love taking care of patients. We love teaching. We love doing research. And that's, everybody does that. But to really, really good at it, you really have to have that passion driving what you want to do. It shouldn't be a job that you go to every day. It should be a, a career and a, and a calling that you really get up every morning and are excited about going to work. As a young student resident, my recommendations are, uh, you know, we're going to, Honesty and hard work are based on expectations. Really need to read. Read as much as you can. And as you move into the resident, fellow, junior faculty, write, write, write. If you really want to be an academic trauma surgeon, the the key to that uh, success and that mission is write as much as you possibly can. You're an excellent example of that. You're somebody who is extremely prolific all the time. And that comes from just writing a lot of papers. The more papers you write, the more papers you get to write, the more you get to present, the more you get invited to, to present, and it really is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, be honest with your patients, your faculty, yourself, work hard, and read, and then write in just constantly. Well, you know, I, I, I'll close with the story. I have to thank you for that, because I do remember distinctly uh, interviewing with you at the time that I was interviewing to be a fellow at L.A. County longer ago than I care to admit. Um, I remember young Carlos Brown interviewing me and looking at my CV, and at which point I had four publications, all in current <laughs> surgery and all in the history of, like, history of parathyroid surgery or something, right? Because that's, that's the resources I had available to me. And I remember the look on your face and the scoff in your voice uh, at how little I had actually done at that point. And it lit a fire under me. And you were a great mentor moving forward to help rectify that situation. So... Uh, I, I will give credit where credit is due to one of my mentors as we can do it in real time. Uh, thank you for drive, for starting that fire. Well, I'll tell you a funny story from my side. How many publications did I have when I started fellowship? Four. <laughs> is that right? I didn't know that. That is, that, that is right. That is right. And the other thing, too, one of the really kind of most rewarding things in my career is watching um, my, my previous residence fellows like you surpass me. I mean, your, your volume of writing and presentations has surpassed mine, which is just so exciting to me to see my my residents and fellows become my peers and and do even more than I could ever want to do and it's just so exciting and, and, and rewarding to see you do what you've done and others do what they've done. Yeah, well you know teach a man to start a fire and you'll warm him for one day, set his ass on fire and he'll be warm for life. <laughs> so perfect. Well said. Perfect. All right, well, listen, thanks, everybody. for Thanks, Carlos, for being here with us, and thanks, everyone else, for listening for the Trauma Podcast. Be sure to check out the rest of our offerings on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for additional topics, comments, or questions, feel free to email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com, all one word, lowercase, thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>